Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast, where we interview violinists from around the world. I am your host, Eric Murgal, and I want to thank you for joining us for this week's episode. If you haven't done so already, if you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again. One of my favorite things about being a podcaster, YouTuber, and musician is that I get to try amazing new products. And you may have heard this already, but Tomasic Infield has released a set of new Dynamo strings. And if you're interested about these strings, I actually made two videos. One as a first reaction to the news, to the announcement of the new Dynamo strings, and my official review of the Dynamo strings. So if you're not familiar with them, these are not for everybody, but these are very interesting strings. And I want to provide as much value to the Violin Podcast audience as much as possible. So much value, in fact, that I actually had a one-hour consultation meeting with the product manager of Tomasic Infeld to discuss the Dynamo strings. And I hope to have him on a future episode of the Violin Podcast to talk about string technology like we did with director of Yargar Strings, Eric Martins. And I encourage you to listen to that episode because it is a fascinating world when we get into string technology, what are some of the possibilities and some of the future uh, developments in string technology. So again, I'm going to leave a link in the podcast show notes for you to listen to and for that full in-depth review. One of my favorite things to do on the violin podcast is to talk to violinists. That's the whole point of the violin podcast. But specifically in today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Maria Udenich. And the reason why this is such a significant episode today, it's because this is the first in-person interview that I have done on the Violin Podcast, which is a really wonderful thing. I hope I get to do more in-person interviews, such as the one I did with Maria a little bit while ago. But to give you some facts about Maria, she was born in Russia, immigrated with her musical family to the U.S. at the age of two, and grew up in Kansas City. In 2021, she received first prizes in the Zai International Music Competition, the Tibor Varga International Violin Competition, and the Joseph Joachim international competition. So she is a competition winner, folks. And not to mention, this is a very fun fact, but she actually plays on the Brothers Amati that Serena Huang played on in the Indianapolis competition not too long ago. And as a matter of fact, we interviewed, I interviewed Serena Huang on the Violin Podcast not too long ago. So we'll get to talk about her experience with that violin as well. So here it is, my conversation with Maria Udenich in Boston. Maria, it's a special day today because you are the first in-person episode that I'm doing on the Violin Podcast. So this is very exciting. I'm so happy that, you know, this is your first time in person, for, you know, so many years. Um, I'm honored. <laughs> Thanks for yes. having me. Yes. And uh, I might have a little bit of nerves and jitters, so you're going to have Same. to forgive me. Yeah. So, you know, I'm gonna, I am have a bunch of questions for you when it comes to your career, but you're a, Boston, you're a Boston person right now. You live in Boston, You, you but, but you travel all over the world. And I want us to get into all your uh, performance engagements, your side hobbies, if you have any outside of violin. Because I know that, you know, if you're in the world of violin, you are so consumed in it that sometimes it's hard to catch a break. Do you have do you have a hobby outside of violin? Not particularly. Like what most people call hobbies, I don't really have one, which is so sad to say. I need to get one. <laughs> but I mean, I love to read. I love to cook. I think cooking, especially when I get back to Boston, is something that gives me a lot of joy. Um, 
some, you know, baking projects. So baking. Oh, I'm I'm a sucker for a good apple pie. Oh my god, I love apple pie. <laughs> yes. If if you want to be my guest on the Violent Podcast, bring me some apple pie to Boston, <laughs> and you're you're in. You're in. <laughs> I know that the members of the Calder String Quartet we talked about having. Uh, coffee as like the first thing that we get up in the morning mm-hmm. and even at night. Are you a are you a, like a morning person or a night owl? Because for me, I I have I struggle. I got to tell you, I struggle performing at night because I'm a morning person. Mm-hmm. Are you in the morning or in the afternoon or evening? The problem is, I aspire to be a morning person. Like that seems to me the perfect ideal. I feel the best in the morning, but of course, with you know with the, the schedule of a performer, you you have to perform at night so um i'm not always a morning person but you know when i have some time free yeah i get up have a nice cup of coffee and it's sort of a relaxed morning then i can get to work awesome so let's dive right into the the performance schedule because as i see on my computer i'm going to go to the upcoming page and since september you've been a busy woman you've just you've been okay so january you've been in zurich on the 9th you're in Germany on the 15th and then on the 20th you're in Kansas City you're all over the place and then recently you just performed with uh Mark Churchill's group Symphony Pro Musica how did that go yeah a lot of fun it was the first time I played Beethoven concerto that Beethoven oh let's talk about Beethoven let's talk about Beethoven (laughs) I actually did a YouTube short recently how the you know how Beethoven can make three notes magical like in the second movement yes isn't that the most beautiful because people say that beethoven can't write a melody what some people do show me those people exactly (laughs) what exactly it's ridiculous it's ridiculous what are some things that you like about the beethoven violin concerto because to me it it's it's a classical concerto but it has such purity into it Mm -hmm. describe your thoughts on that yeah well we just talked about melodies i love the melodies in the beethoven concerto i know many people say that the the violin part is a lot of, you know, scales, arpeggios, accompaniment to what the orchestra does with the melodies. But first of all, whenever the violinist gets the melodies, they are heavenly, they are magical, they're some of the most beautiful um, melodies written, I think. But also with the accompaniment that we have to do, the accompaniment sort of like flows around what the orchestra does it goes in and out it it's it's like a body of water sort of gathering all the all the beauty that is happening in the orchestra and at first i it was daunting i'm like oh gosh i have to play you know all these octaves and scales and how am i going to make music out of that but with the orchestra it fits so well together and it's the most joyous joyous thing to perform it's a really delightful concerto yeah I don't think there's a single bad note. Nope. Some, some, you're right. There are some concertos where I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, like one measure or two. It's like, get rid of <laughs> not Something that comes to mind is not a concerto per se, but it's like the Andante from the A minor Bach. Mm. That, you know, that transition, that repeat is kind of awkward, especially in the second half. I don't know if you... Oh, I see. That, this, that to me yeah. is kind of awkward. That's like one of the like the couple measures that I think of as like mm-hmm. an awkward transition. Bach usually sure. is pretty on his game, but in the last two measures of that Andante with the repeat, it's kind of strange to me. But Beethoven, however, is one of the greatest composers ever. And he wrote a concerto. He didn't write many uh, violin concertos. He wrote a lot of piano concertos, but there's only one violin concerto. 
for those of you who are listening to the Violin Podcast for the first time, want to get to know Beethoven Violin Concerto, highly recommend, highly recommend. Yeah. There's just this conversation about Beethoven where he's always trying to reach for the divine. That's mm -hmm. something that I've talked about in the, in the podcast in, in the past. What does Beethoven mean to you? Not just this concerto, but Beethoven as, as a person, as a composer, as a musician. Yeah, I, th I think what you said about Beethoven striving for it to be this divine um, divine entity in the music, I think that's totally true. And you feel that while playing. Like, you know, the, when the violin gets to play the main, the, the theme in the second movement of the concerto, it's like halfway through the, through the piece because the orchestra plays everything, the, the, the main parts in the first half. Then when you get to that, and I'm stealing this from my teacher, Miriam. She says that that part is, um, it, it feels like time stops. Um, do you know the, the G, G, B, A, da, da, yes, da, 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 definitely. Mm -hmm. magical spot where the, where the strings are playing super quietly and you can have all the freedom in the world. This to, is in the second movement. Second movement, right, yeah. yeah. It's a gorgeous melody and time really does stand still. You feel like you're not on earth. You feel like maybe you're in heaven if you believe mm -hmm. in that or just in some other dimension. It feels, it's incredible. It's incredible. Not only that, but you're performing Tchaikovsky soon as of this recording. And you are going to be releasing an album. So you're very busy. And I want us to dive right into the different types of selections you have chosen for this album, Songbird. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't listened to Songbird for our audience, you know, I highly recommend um, as of this recording, it'll probably be out on all streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. And describe the idea behind the album because it's with Warner Classics. How did that conversation come about? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them with this idea? Talk, talk to us about that. Right. So uh, this album is actually directly a result of a competition I participated in, the Joachim competition in Germany. And one of their prizes is the Warner Classics um, Award which I was very lucky to, to win. And the result of that is getting to record an album with Warner. Um, so once, you know, I got in contact with the main person from there, um, we started talking about what I would like to record. And honestly, this was one of the first ideas, something to do with songs, with the human voice, because that's my biggest inspiration. What other pieces are on the album? So, um, so we have a collection of um, song arrangements. For example, Rachmaninoff's um, "Don't Sing My Beauty" for me. The the translation's strange, but right. it's "Don't mm -hmm. Sing My Beauty," something yeah. like that, um, which I arranged actually. Um, there are a few few other arrangements like that. Uh, then there are songs where I don't really, or where I just play the vocal line, like Fanny Mendelssohn's "Erwin." Mm. I'm just playing the vocal line. Maybe in the repeat, I do a few little ornamentations, but very few. A little few. more violinistic A little things. bit. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and then some pieces are just inspired. They they are songful. They are melodic, like beach romance. Mm -hmm. um, it's By the way, I love the Amy Beach romance. Isn't I feel it beautiful? like it's so underrated. Yeah. Amy Beach, actually, there's a statue of Amy Beach in Boston. Did you know that? What? No. What? What? <laughs> you, you, yes. Where? There's a statue in... Um, it's 
It's like in like on the direction of Harvard, like closer to the Harvard Bridge. There's a statue of Amy Whoa. Beach. Yeah, let me hold on. Let me oh check. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Amy Beach statue. Boston. Yeah, it's right here. What? It's a what? part of the Back Bay East Tour, Boston Women's Heritage Trail. Yeah, it's right here. That's beautiful. Yeah, this is what it looks <gasps> like. Wow. There's like a little little monument there. Um, it's. I actually played Amy Beach's romance for my junior recital. I thought Aww. that even like even back then, um, first of all, I I want to celebrate all female composers for, for you know first of all because you know Fanny Mendelssohn, Amy Beach, those are wonderful composers that everybody should get to know to listen to. Uh, Clara Schumann is also another wonderful um, composer. Is there any other person besides Amy Beach who you resonate with who's a female composer? Yes, I think both the sisters, Boulanger sisters. Um, I've played pieces by Lily Boulanger. She's spectacular, and it's, I mean, she had such a short career because she, she died so young. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started looking into Nadia Boulanger's music, and she doesn't have so much written for, for violin, which is why I chose, actually, she's in the album. Um, I chose mm. a piece, Soleil Couchant, mm -hmm. um, it's a song. It's an actual song for, for voice and piano. And that's also another one that I didn't really arrange at all. I just played the vocal line. So, Describe your relationship with your, with your pianist. Um, how did you get in touch with him or have you played with him in the past? So the pianist is uh, Kenny Broberg, and he is a former student of my father, actually. Mm. Um, and that's how I know him. And I've always admired and loved his playing, and I thought it would be a good match, despite the fact we never played together before. <laughs> so it was it was a leap of faith uh, when I asked him to record the album. So I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> well, it definitely sounded like it worked out because yeah. there is a really wonderful musical chemistry between the two of you, yeah. uh, based on what I've seen in in the music video. And he has a wonderful touch that's sensitive to your playing. Yeah, and, totally. Um, but I do want to talk about your your repertoire selections because it's very diverse. Like I'm looking here that you have Chopin, Ravel, Dolores White. Sometimes you have uh, Still. Describe your your um, repertoire choices in a given recital. Is there like a specific theme to your uh, recital selections? Is it something that like, okay, I want to just have a bunch of random um, different styles in one recital. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us about that? Yeah, of course. I try to have a theme in all my recitals because I think that's a a good way to connect with an audience on another level. Um, to present a storyline um, in a different dimension with a theme. So the, the, the composers you mentioned, the, these pieces were part of a program that I like to call American in Paris because it's mm. a combination of French and American works. And in that program is included um, the Gershwin piece, An American in Paris. So it sort of ties everything, <laughs> ties everything together. Um, so yeah, that program included... Um, so the Dolores White, for example, she's still living. And I found this piece. Um, it's a solo piece. Super hard, let me tell you, <laughs> super difficult, but a great fun to play. And it's called Blues Dialogues, which ties into um, Ravel Blues Sonata, which I also programmed on that, on that concert. So I try to find little connections everywhere. 
That's interesting. I find that I like to have a theme in my recital. I my um, this is a totally random <laughs> story, but I'll share it on the Violin Podcast anyway. I was in Poland visiting my grandparents, and um, we you know we're in the in the big square in Krakow, you know, where the church with the two different uh, two different uh, pointing uh, thingies. I don't know what's <laughs> it official term for that, but I happened to come across a, like a random concert. It's all Chopin. Hmm. I go. Oh my gosh, what a wonderful concert that we can go to. My grandma's like, nah. <laughs> I'm like, why? It's like, it's all the same thing. Oh. <laughs> it's all the same thing. I mean, I love Chopin, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but if I have to hear a bunch of etudes and nocturnes for like an hour, you know, that that's gonna be um sure. it's gonna be kind of dull. And it goes to what Robert McDuffie on the violin podcast said a couple episodes ago. And and if you haven't heard that episode, I recommend you do because we talk about the audience experience. Mm -hmm. And actually, a report on Slipdisc just recently announced, or there was a poll that, you know, classical music audiences are actually trickling down and declining. So, do you think that has anything to do with the, uh, with the presentation of the concert experience or the repertoire that's presented? I'm wondering if you can maybe comment on that because based on what I see that maybe that poll is com that poll is completely false because you're performing everywhere <laughs> around Germany Elbhill Philharmonie um, the MDR Symphony Orchestra you know you're everywhere so I, I'm wondering if you can comment on that if you can yes I mean I have two different responses to that I mean the first one is certainly I think we can do much more as artists to connect to the audience to grow with the audience to grow with the climate around us um, and this, I mean, this profession, this art form started as such an elitist and, um, not inclusive art form. So of course, if we keep doing that, it's not going to include anyone in the world, you know? Um, so we have a long ways to go. I think we can do that with programming of course uh, we can do that by speaking to the audience before the concert speaking on stage I think that brings you closer with people who are listening to you um, but my other response to that is um, backing up so my father won the Van Cliburn competition in 2001 and through that became very close to Van Cliburn and I remember there was a dinner that I was lucky enough to attend with my dad and Van Cliburn and my mom, and we were talking about the same thing, like, oh, classical music is dying, right? Like, what are we going to do? What is the future? And Van Cliburn was just like, you know, we had the same conversations when I was a kid. Same, mm. same conversations. People kept saying, oh, classical music is dying. So these conversations keep repeating themselves. So hopefully <laughs> it's not the case. You know, that you, you bring up many interesting points already. I think... I'm a big fan of Joseph Haydn. Mm -hmm. I love Joseph Haydn because to me, he is, you know, the OG entrepreneur in terms of the music world. Because if you really think about it in 21st century terminology, what he did was create music content. And to that literally is a symphony or a quartet or whatever, right? You know, he was hired by the Prince of Esarhazy. If you guys don't know the history, recommend you read up on that. And I, for one... Um, love the guy because I, I look to him as inspiration for, you know, what we can do right now in the 21st century. You got just got to make a lot of content, whether it's 
recording albums, whether it's composing, whatever you need to do, you just need to do it at mass scale. And I mm -hmm. think that's what makes us appreciate the likeliness of, you know, Bach, you know, uh, Clara Schumann, Amy Beach, all those, all those wonderful composers. And yeah, I don't, you know, there really isn't an answer, like a direct mm -hmm. answer. I feel like there are so much studies and I think it's just the media trying to create fear, you know, not to be political, but like in terms of the classical music. And I think us classical musicians, we read that and we do get scared. Mm -hmm. We do get scared. And I think classical music, in my eyes, I was attending a Handel and Haydn concert, Beethoven, uh, Beethoven three, Eroica. Classical music's live and well, I think. And I guess it depends on what pockets you're talking about. Like, uh, Boston definitely is a big music hub. You can find all sorts of different music, classical, pop, hip hop, rap, whatever. But I think that's, a, you know, a conversation we'll continue to have on the podcast with future guests to come. I think I even spoke with that with, um, you know, with Robert McDuffie again, because he's fresh in my mind. I recorded that episode recently. So good. So I want us to transition to the violin part of the violin podcast. Now that we've discussed your career a little bit, I would love to talk about the violin that you're playing on and your approach to the violin technique, all that stuff. Sure. So I've gone through so many changes with different violins in the past year, actually. But currently I'm playing a Brothers Amati violin that actually Serena Huang played recently. That's right. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started rolling. And you have the violin in the studio. Yes. The one that she won the Indianapolis competition with. Yes, yes, yes. How did you, how did you manage to get that? <laughs> I, Serena, hi, hello, if you're listening. <laughs> total luck, actually. Um, you know, we're, as young artists, we're always searching for an instrument to play. They cost a ridiculous amount of money. So uh, we keep searching for someone who, who's... It'll cost me a kidney and maybe a liver, two livers. And, two. I, don't have, and I don't have more than one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I called up a friend, uh, in Chicago who, who owns Darton and Hirsch violins, fine violins. I'm butchering the name of the shop, but, <laughs> but I called him up and I asked, is there, is there anything possibly that I can play on, uh, for the near future? And he said, actually, Serena's about to come on a Friday to drop off the violin that she was just playing on the Samati. Would you like to try it? I said, yes. I immediately flew to Chicago, tried it for like three hours and... Fell in love. Fell in love and, and took it. And then I had a concerto performance like two days after I took the violin. So it was like immediately <laughs> to, had to do the job. <laughs> what, what was the adjustment period? Did you did you feel like an instant connection or did you feel like there are some certain qualities of the violin that you kind of had to get used to right away? Yeah, you had to... I had to get used to it. Um, a little bit because it's a very sensitive instrument in that it has such a personality on its own. Um, and I can't just, you know, do what I want and expect it to respond just because I want I want it. So I had to figure out its particular colors um, and how the sound rings uh, because that's very different on each instrument. It's so fascinating. I would love to hear you play. Of course, we're in a, in a, in a dry studio, but we this is the first time where I'm t talking to someone who... You know, same violin, two people. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. <laughs> yes. You know, that's definitely for the records. Um, are you? Do you care about bows? Do you, do you have a like a um, like a specific bow that you've 
had for a long time, or did you switch the bow with uh, the instrument? Yeah, uh, I'm. I wish I knew more about bows. I wish I, you know, had a bigger knowledge on you know what kind of wood or you know what what that does. Unfortunately, I um, feel more comfortable with the difference in violence. But I do have a bow from Benoit Roland mm. that I just got last year, and I really love it. And it has a Galian frog. Have you heard of those? No, I haven't. It's his invention. It's a, a tilted frog. So the purpose of it is so that so that the hair on the on the bow <clears throat> keeps uh, flat for a greater amount of time. Oh. So as it gets to the tip of the bow, as you as you draw the bow, it kind of stays flat more or less, unless you like really tilt it. That's interesting. Yeah. Are you? Uh player that plays close to the bridge a lot or close to the fingerboard close to the fingerboard my teachers will kill me but <laughs> no I i'm just, yeah. I, okay what for about all you? my for all my violin teach uh, all my violin students play near the bridge please. i know i know <laughs> play near the bridge it's gonna help you yes. you get a nice core sound unless you're playing on a brother's amati then you can do whatever you want okay but you're demonstrated you've are capable of playing so many wonderful concertos, Brahms, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven. I see you have Barber. Like, it's crazy to see, like, Barber on January 22nd, Beethoven on February 5th, Tchaikovsky, February 25th. But how do you stay in shape with all these repertoire? And do you stay in shape? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a good question. Right now, it's just, you got to make it happen. I, I just, there's no, not much thinking. <laughs> thinking when you have such a schedule like that you just you have to make it work um i think especially with a new violin that you just yeah. kind of acquired and how right. long ago was this um it's been a couple months i think okay so you, you've months. you've spent some hours with it then i have yes okay. certainly um what kind of literature are you interested in like do you read all like music stuff do you um do all sorts of like like fiction reading like i'm a, I'm a sucker for sci-fi sci really yeah my, one of my favorite authors is max berry who's this australian author that, that's like something i like to do outside of music because like, like i said before i'm sure you feel this way that you feel so consumed in in this career where you're traveling and you're performing so much that we forget to um take care of ourselves yeah. Am I right? Yeah, for so, sure. So, actually, this is a good segue. What are some tips that you can offer to violinists in terms of, like, mental health and self-care when you're a violinist, especially with such a vigorous schedule like yourself? Well, of course, this applies to, to all musicians. Um, I mean, really, I would say take... Take it seriously. Take the self-care seriously. I used to not take it seriously. I thought it was an excuse. I thought it was like, you know, some sort of laziness. But that is so far from the truth. We really have to take care of ourselves first in order to <clears throat> be able to serve the music. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I know. It's so dry in here. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get so, some of that. <laughs> yeah, get that, get that water and I'll drink some too. That leads me to the violin part of the violin podcast when it comes to practice technique. So, because I feel like a lot of what I teach, and maybe you can comment on this, uh, practice is just understanding the behavior, you know, you, the behavior towards practice. And how do you approach practice? Do you start with scales? Do you um, have some quiet meditation when you think about the music? I, I'm just making stuff up, but what? how do you start 
your practice <clears throat> sessions and how do you proceed with practice? Lately, because of the amount of repertoire, I've been warming up with um, passage work from from the repertoire. Like if I'm not gonna not gonna practice Shostakovich concerto today. Um, I will warm up with passage work from it. Mm. There are so many scales and arpeggios in all of these works where we can warm up and at the same time get a little closer to progress with those pieces. So that's how I warm up. So you're actually doing two things at once. Mm -hmm. You're actually studying the repertoire, you're practicing, you're warming up, but then you realize that the piece actually has a bunch of scales and arpeggios, so you're actually doing two things at once. Yep. If you're my student listening on the violin podcast, practice your scales. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning, they help, but <laughs> no, I think what you're what you're suggesting also, like because you have such limited time, you can't do everything. You can't run an entire Shostakovich concerto because you actually you will burn out because it's long. I think that practice is fun. Uh, it's, it's it's a funny topic because everybody has a different approach. Mm -hmm. That definitely a different approach for me. I don't have time because I have a young one and family to take care of. And actually, a lot of violinists who are teachers or performers have the same thing. So it's interesting to see a perspective that you just have to, you have one hour and you have to practice within this one hour, like no exceptions, no distractions. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, is your six-month-old starting the violin? <laughs> like I said... <laughs> We're starting with Solfege, mm -hmm, fixed mm -hmm. though. Gonna try to implement that that perfect pitch in the beginning, <laughs> because you know his brain is like a sponge. Right now yeah. he's at the spitting age. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> right. And then um, also I'll share a video, but it's like it's like spitting out. <laughs> it's like it's it's adorable, but it's like say fa, say do, <laughs> si, you know. Mm -hmm. Cute. Um, I don't know if he's gonna be a violinist, and I don't. I don't want to push it on him. Yeah. I definitely want to teach him music first, if you know what I mean. And maybe someone who is listening, you can comment on this in the comments section of the podcast or in the in the reviews. I want to teach him music first, so that way he understands how to read music. Because right now I'm, because language music is a language, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is interpreted by audio so if you can listen to the language first if you're around that you know i've mentioned on the podcast my wife's a pianist so we try to play with him um piano but i will admit in the first couple months every time i tuned a violin he would scream to his heart's desire his face would be like cherry tomato oh, like no. his head's about to pop off just by tuning i'm like oh my gosh if I have a to... sign. it's a sign <laughs> no, oh god please don't tell me Maybe he'll maybe he'll go into viola. Oh, well, certainly, he's less screechy. <laughs> yeah, um, I think he I think he's into the lower voice sounds. Um, you know, my wife is also into you know like lower strings like cello, mm -hmm. viola. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like, ah, it doesn't sound like you have enough core. Like you should play more on the G and D string. I'm like, I have to play on the E and A string eventually, dear. But yeah, it's it's interesting when I teach students. Like young students, I think my youngest is maybe five, five years old. And it's interesting just to see that perspective. If I have that five-year-old in front of me, and I actually I'm going to teach this five-year-old later, you know, the approach to each five-year-old is really different. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, will my son be the same five-year-old as I'm teaching now? Probably not. I'm going to have to, you know, be really creative to do games and, you know, 
figure out intonation or whatever and note reading. Um, before we go, I know that we're running out of time a little bit. You're, I would say that you're in the performance circuit. You're in the scene and, you know, you have master's and artist diploma from New England Conservatory, really renowned string school. What are some career advice that you that you have gotten that has helped you propel in your career and what can you offer our audience today who is a conservatory student or is looking to have a career in music like someone who is you know because right now it's audition season right, right. so yeah. right now it's audition season so someone is looking to become a professional musician and to invest time and energy and money to a collegiate education would you mind commenting on that sure uh First of all, I know it's such a tough season right now with auditions. I've gone through it all. Um, hang in there. <laughs> you got it. You got it. You got <laughs> you it. We've really all been there. It. Yeah. I think my biggest advice is to really take advantage of all the people that you have around you because you can learn so much from absolutely everyone, from your from your colleagues, your peers, your friends who are doing the same thing as you, who are loving the same thing as you. Um, to, of course, your teachers, your main teachers, but also other teachers that are not your instrument, for example. Um, you can learn so much from them. Uh, I think that's a huge part of, of my history is um, getting so much wisdom from so many different people. And what about violin? So that was a career, but what about violin? What can you offer someone who is tight on time or someone who is just struggling in the practice room? Mm -hmm. How do you overcome that struggle? Well, I think the first thing is, and it's hard to do, I recognize, but it's to remember why you're doing this in the first place. And hopefully the why is that you, is that you love it so much and that you're inspired by the music and that you want to share it with others. We're all going to have those moments in the practice room that you just want to just just like lay down and do nothing and just and just restart the day but you can't see this <laughs> but i'm raising my hand and i'm one of those people it i'm also one of those people yeah it's hard um but actually a practical thing i would suggest there is no way that 100% of what you're doing is wrong right so <laughs> <laughs> choose Recognize those moments where things are working and let them go. Don't practice them. Practice the moments that are really, you know, um, creating trouble for you. Practice that a lot. And if it's not better at the end of the day, I promise you it's actually going to be better tomorrow. So there's always progress happening. It's all good. <laughs> awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Maria Udenich, you can find her on mariaudenich.com and be sure to be on the lookout for her upcoming album songbird you definitely don't want to miss that maria it's a pleasure thank you for being my first in-person guest this was a lot of fun i've always said on the violin podcast that i want to interview people in person i've always said that and now it's confirmed that i really do want to do it mm -hmm. whether if you're in boston and if you're performing with bso or if you're traveling for recitals and if you're in boston please hit me up because i definitely want to interview you because i love having conversations with violinists in person so, Maria, thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. What an amazing time that was to speak with Maria. And if you like this episode, I encourage you to subscribe because we have more episodes 
on the way. We're definitely not losing steam. If you really like the podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform of your choice. Follow us on social media. Get connected with us and particularly with me. You know, I run all the social media, so it'll be wonderful to get the conversation going. Send us a message. And if you want to see the full in-person interview, I actually have the video on YouTube. So if you made it this far into the podcast episode, if you made it to the end, click on the video podcast link on YouTube in the podcast show notes, because that's where we actually have a really nice full episode in person. And you get to see Maria's expressions. And my plan is to continue doing those types of episodes where I get to record them and post them on YouTube. So if you are a visual person, then you can definitely listen to the Violent Podcast and watch the Violent Podcast on YouTube. Special thanks to the Podcast Garage for helping us record this wonderful interview with Maria, and we hope to see you soon.